We're going to be continuing our series in the Old Testament, and today I would like to look at roadblocks when reading the Old Testament. Um, we all know how important it is for us to be regularly reading the Bible. And quite often people start reading the Old Testament and they hit a roadblock and they either give up reading or they just get very confused. They don't know what to do. And uh, today my goal is to try to shift three of these roadblocks uh, or at least make them a bit less of a block for us. Uh, so they're a little bit movable. Maybe we can kind of just squeeze around them and although they're not completely solved. Um, because I want you to be more intentional about reading your Bible this year and particularly the Old Testament. So that raises the question, um, if we're reading the Old Testament, how important is it to read the Old Testament? Well, do you know how much of the Bible is Old Testament percentage wise? Does anyone want to try and guess? I was always taught it was three quarters. And so I thought, well, let me actually count it. And I got my Bible and actually counted the pages and discovered it was 78%, which is slightly over three quarters. So that's a lot. So if you can't read the Old Testament, then there's a problem. Um, so it's important then to to avoid any blocks that we might have to reading the Old Testament. Uh, so... I'm, there are different kinds of roadblocks that we can we can find. You may not have encountered this kind. I actually did once when we were in Sri Lanka. I we we had this kind of roadblock, but there there are different kinds. And uh, what might cause some problems? What are the potential roadblocks? Well, I today I do I want to look at three different kinds of roadblock. The first of these is it's just confusing. I just don't know what this is about. This is very, very confusing. The second is violence or abuse. I'm just not sure. This doesn't sound very nice to me. Or the third one is strange or problematic laws. Um, often people end up with the attitude, well, you know, when it comes to the Old Testament, I, I can read the Psalms. The Psalms are okay. I like the Psalms. Well, except some of the Psalms are a little problematic. And um, it's a kind of minimal approach to the Old Testament. Well, I want to be absolutely clear that these problems I'm going to be looking at are big problems. And I'm not going to give to be able to give you the full answers in such a short time. But here are some good answers. And sorry, there are some good answers. And if you're interested in um, learning in a particular issue that I'm covering this morning, and you'd like to hear a bit more depth, I'm quite happy to find some resources for you. And something that's a bit more in depth that I'm doing this morning, because this is very important. So the first thing I want to talk about is confusing. And let me give you an example. This is Ezekiel 17. Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. 
Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots towards him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. So when I read this, I was as confused as you probably are right now. Um, and the reason that we're confused is as this is written, this is a prophecy written in a very specific context. And we don't know what the context is. We don't know what the background is that's going on here. And uh, you either, to understand this, you either need to spend a lot of time researching the history and the biblical background to this, or find somebody who has done and the quickest way of finding someone who has done is to get a study Bible. Now, I have one. This is mine. This is the ESV study Bible. And uh, I find this to be very helpful. And it's got so passages like this. It can give you a very good um, uh, summary of this. So that isn't this passage, but it gives you charts. It gives you um, gives you explanations and explains to you what's going on in that particular passage. So I'm going to suggest to you that um, uh, if you can't understand this scripture here, it's not your fault. It's, it's hard and you need to have some help in doing that. Um, so uh, I'm going to talk a bit more about confusing. Um, sometimes there's weird visions with no explanation like we've just seen. But sometimes it doesn't seem to be all in order. What's the order? So, for example, the book of Kings and then the book of Chronicles cover the same time period, roughly. And so when you get to Chronicles, you suddenly discover you're back um, and you're you're reading the same stuff again. Um, uh, other books like Isaiah and other prophecies, they can be they're not in order of time. And so, again, we need some help in sorting out where all these things fit together. Um, and this is another place that a study Bible can really help. Um, now, of course, a lot of the books is pretty obvious where they are, like the first five books of the Bible. You know, it's a storyline and some it really doesn't matter where they are, like Job. It's a story. But um, some of them, like particularly the prophecies, you need to know where it is. Um, sometimes there's great detail on lives of some seemingly unimportant people. Um, so, for example, there's a story of a, of a man in, in Israel who had three sons and he and his wife, um, because of famine, moved out. And they moved to Moab. And while they were there, um, the sons got married, but then all died. And the husband died and the wife decided to move back again. And you might think, well, what's what's all this about? And it turns out that one of the son's wives is called Ruth and she decides she's going to go back with her mother. And in fact, those aren't important people in the, at the beginning of the story, but there's a very important truth being revealed about how God relates to people. And so often in the story, don't think, well, why is this important? Like, look, what is this telling me about God and how he relates to people? And of course, Ruth does end up by being very important because she is a, the, the great, great grandmother of David. And so, um, I think that's right. Great, great grandmother. Yeah. 
Okay, could be his grandmother. So uh, that's uh, so. So sometimes there seems to be a lot of detail, and you know, why is that detail there? But it's all there for a purpose. Every word counts. Um, sometimes it seems like it's a string of failures. You know, like the kings in Israel and in Judah, they get worse and worse and worse. And but this is the point. God wants to show that His love and power uh, are are stronger than our failure and they can be above they can rise above our failure and also um if everything was completely successful in the old testament we wouldn't need jesus to come so some of it is actually building up to the need for jesus christ to come so um again uh, i would say a study bible or a good friend would be a help in all of these issues uh, but, but particularly um, the first of those issues. So um, we've just, we've looked then at confusing. We're now going to look at violence or abuse, and then we're going to end by looking at strange or problematic laws. So, um, what about violence or abuse? Well, the first thing I would like to look at in this is animal sacrifices. What's all this about? blood and killing animals and so on what's going on here so we need a little bit of background here and i think this is not well understood um we know that god allowed humans to 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 eat animals for food he allowed he allowed humans to to kill animals for food very early on after the fall um but in the law in his israelite law they had to recognize that the death only happened because we live in a sinful, broken world. That's the only reason why there's the killing of animals. And so the animal dies so that we can live. So to reinforce this idea, when the nation was small, when they were in the wilderness, uh, every time they killed an animal for food, every time they had to honour the fact that life had been given so that they could live. And they had to honor that by taking the blood from the animal, and the, the life was symbolized in the animal's lifeblood, taking that and bringing that to the temple, to the, well, it was the tabernacle in the wilderness. And that was symbolically, I mean, that wasn't really even a sacrifice. That was just like every time an animal was killed, recognizing this fact that this is the world we live in, that the animal dies. And honoring that. When the nation grew, they didn't have to do that if they lived too far from the temple. And so the rules relaxed a bit. But that was behind the animal sacrifices. And um, in almost all of the animal sacrifices, it was actually meal. The food was eaten. Um, and this was a very powerful in teaching them to respect all life teaching them even to respect animal life, but also to make them realize that the animals were dying so that they could live. And this pointed forward to the time when Jesus would come and die as a substitute for his people. So um, that was what was going on with the animal sacrifices. And the um, the this this idea of us being provided for 
so that we from from the death of the animal because we're living in this broken world this sin-filled world now the next one i want to talk about is uh, probably the one of the most difficult this morning that's commands to let the israelite to the israelite to attack and kill and i would say this is one of the areas where people have the most problems with the old testament so it's important to address it Recently, there's a magazine called The American Muslim that published a list of violent uh, passages in the Bible in order to argue that uh, Islam is less violent than Christianity. But most of the quotes that they gave were not people being told to be violent, but just reporting some violent event that happened and not, you know, not saying it was good in any way at all, just listing that. And of course, that doesn't, that's not a problem at all to report things that that happened um they didn't condone the violence but there were occasions where god did tell them to uh do something that was violent and then it was uh, uh, then it was very specific and it was limited in its scope Uh, there was there's never there's not any commands in the old testament that give us license to kill today. So what about these few times when they are, are told, say, for example, to destroy a city? How are we going to deal with that? That's problematic. What are we going to do? So here is how I would pr- approach this question. <clears throat> Does God have a right to judge the world? That's the question. Um, and if he does, uh, say there's a day of judgment, which the Bible teaches, and in the day of judgment, God has a right to apportion punishment to those who deserve it. So on the day of judgment, God will judge all who have ever lived. So um, God sometimes judges through events before the day of judgment. He judges in this life. So, for example, um in the wilderness, when the Israelites rebelled against God, then uh, at one point he he uh, released a whole lot of poisonous snakes that were biting them. And now he provided a way that if they looked to a snake, a brass snake on a pole, they could be, they could survive. But many died at that time as a judgment for the rebellion that was going on and the sin that was going on. So God was judging even at that time, and the, the, the snakes were like a tool he used to judge the rebellious, a little bit like a surgeon using a scalpel to cut out those who were wicked and rebellious amongst the people. So think of the, 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 the serpent then as like a scalpel. So what about the few rare cases when the, the Israelites are are told to destroy a city. I would say that for a very limited time and for a very specific purpose, God used Israel like a scalpel. Um, from the archaeological evidence that we have, the the Canaanites, those were the people in the land um, were, that, that the Israelites came to occupy, were inc- uh, they they were incredibly. Uh, depraved in the practices they'd sunk into. Um, 
just uh, one of the most extreme depravity of human history, uh, horrific cruelty, even sacrificing their babies in ways that I won't describe to you because it's so appalling. And uh, God was using Israel in a unique fashion that never happened before or afterwards to be like a scalpel that brought, if you like, the dead judgment, advanced it into uh, into their time to remove those people. So we can't judge God. We have to accept that Israel was his chosen scalpel at that time to do that, to root out this, ca- this cancer. And note that never again was such a mandate given to do anything like that um, uh, in their history. Again, as I say, I'm, I'm not claiming that I'm giving the full solution here. And there are many people who've done a lot more work than I have to try to solve this problem. Um, and, you know, there I can direct you to more information if you're interested. So the next thing I'd like to look at is the subject of slaves and slavery. And uh, let's give you an example. Exodus chapter 21, we read, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Wait a minute. Buy a slave? Buy a slave? What's it talking about here? This is slavery. Isn't slavery horribly wrong? Um, Well, the first thing to say is this has got nothing to do with North American slavery in the last few centuries, which had the extra dimension of racism and was one of the most appalling stains on Western civilization. Um, This kind of slavery was a form of employment. In fact, technically, nowadays, we would call this indentured service indentured servitude. It was a six-year live-in employment contract. Um, And they would be treated like family members. Uh, So, for example, Abraham's uh, eldest servant, uh, he he was given charge of everything in his house. As he said, he was sent off to find a wife for uh, Abraham's son. And in the discussion when he was um, talking to the, the, the family of the wife, he said, you know, Abraham's given me, every, there's nothing in that, that Abraham has that I don't, that I don't look after. And he was given all this responsibility. And Abraham said to God, if I die without a child, he will be, he's like the next in line, my eldest son, he'll get everything. So the family members, when Joseph was in Egypt, it's interesting that um, Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house. And when um, part of his wife tried to seduce him, he said, uh, he said, Potiphar has given me, has put everything in my hand. I'm basically his equal. The only thing that he's not given me is you. How can I possibly do this to him? And so his position was like just about effectively equal to that of Potiphar. It was such a highly regarded position. Um, now, of course, there were abuses. And I'm not saying there were, there were some horrible abuses of it. But um, it was a job for life if you wanted it. And it was a complete package of health care, pension, security for your life. Um, so even so, it's, it's not the best way of employing people. Even so, I'm certainly not going to recommend that it's a good way of going forward. But all I'm saying is that it, it doesn't have the kind of necessary abuse that 
we can put on it from our modern context. Um, it's not good. Slavery is never good. But there are different kinds of slavery that are have happened through history. Um, so uh, I've, we've talked about three kinds of roadblock. We've talked about the confusing. We've talked about violence or abuse. And I want to end by talking about strange or problematic laws. And so let's think of some examples here. The Some of the regulations, and I'm going to talk about harvesting laws. These are, are civil regulations given to the people. Uh, treatment of women can be quite problematic. Um, very detailed laws about food, clothing, and religious structure. So, first of all, uh, let's talk about the harvesting laws. So, when God established them as a nation, there were lots of laws that were just simply about how society functioned. Just like we have things like speed limits on highways, which are there to restrain stupid drivers. Now, why can't we just say everybody drive at a sensible speed? Uh, most people would, but there are a lot of irresponsible people out there who wouldn't. And so we wouldn't need law if everybody had a pure heart. But sadly, law is necessary in order to restrain bad behavior. And when you have a very rough society, then laws have to be able to restrain the kind of roughness and abuses that could go on in that society. So let's look specific an example of the harvesting laws. So when they harvested an olive tree or a, a grapevine or something like that, they were only allowed to go over it once. We read about this in Deuteronomy 24 and verses 19 through 22. I'm not going to read them, but uh, I'll summarize they could go over once, but they couldn't go back and check if they'd missed anything. Why was that? It was for the widows, the orphans, and the new immigrants. Like, for example, Ruth in the book of Ruth was fell under this category. And they could then take the whatever it was, 10, 15% that was left there unharvested. And that provided a very rudimentary social security system, a very primitive system, but it actually, but it was a lot better than nothing at all. And so uh, this is the kind of law that went in that's really just like preventing the worst kind of abuses, preventing people actually dying of, of hunger um, because nobody cares enough about them to give them some food. Um, so the purpose of this law was to limit this abuse within that culture. So uh, when you read that, don't think this is God's ideal plan. Uh, don't think um, that um, this is, you know, this is what God thinks is the best thing that should happen. Because after the day of Pentecost, with the coming of the Spirit in the New Covenant, we have something that really contrasts against that because we have a community formed. Do you remember what happened in that community? They had all things in common and it said that part of the community was that they would provide for the widows and they would actually collect things up and distribute it to the widows in this kind of culture of love. And this 
was actually God's ideal. God's ideal was that people out of love would provide for the needy. So what we see from this is an important principle, which is progressive revelation. And this is key to our understanding of the Old Testament. There is a progress throughout the Bible in clarity of revelation of God's heart. We must understand the progressive nature of God's revelation. And uh, this is moving from the excesses, limiting the excesses of a violent society to a place where love and justice ruled. So just as slavery was no way the ideal method of employment, no matter how kindly it was done, at least a law could provide some protection and minimize the damage. Uh, so that was that's my first point there on regulations. The second thing I'd like to talk about is treatment of women. And here is a clear example of the progressive revelation of God in the Bible. So the Old Testament didn't uh, didn't condemn polygamy. That's when a man has multiple wives. Um, and it the protection it gave to women who were divorced was quite minimal. Uh, people could just divorce with divorce their wife with no no uh, reason. They could just do it because they wanted to. Um, but Jesus is very clear that this was not God's plan, but this was a minimal ruling to restrain the worst behavior. And we read this about this in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. And I've kind of put together the two accounts uh, just for, for clarity. Uh, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, God's plan for marriage is not that. And he goes on, we haven't got the verses there, but he goes on to describe to them that um, that men and women should be, should be uh, committed to one another and there should not be divorce in this kind of way. And so what is important about this passage is uh, verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. In other words, the law of Moses is um, not ideal in any way. It's kind of a minimal law. And Jesus in quite a few places says, it was said to you, we then quote the Old Testament law, but I say to you, and then gives what he is, his extension of that. And so uh, it's, it's quite clear in this passage and many other passages that Jesus does not regard Old Testament law as being, um, the, the full revelation of God's desire. In fact, it's very minimal and just there, as he says, to restrain the wickedness, to restrain evil. Um, so there's a place in John, one John, John chapter one, verse 17. 
For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So very clearly indicating this progress of revelation. And I would like to read a passage from Galatians, which I think really, really clearly puts this together. Galatians chapter 3. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. And the word guardian translated there is a specific word used for the servant who would take the child to school and make sure the child was where had schooling when they were young. Uh, so it's, it was for a young child. And so this idea of like maturity now, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, no longer under the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And then here is the really important verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, again, you could hardly get a clearer passage for showing the progress of revelation from the old through to the new. So, um, and what the third point I'd like to look at is some very detailed laws about food, clothing, and religious structure. And um, I'd like to to deal with a really fundamental issue as we go into this. That there are three main approaches to relating the Old Testament to the New Testament, relating the old to the new. And those approaches, we can call it a continuum between continuity and discontinuity. So what do I mean by this? Well, the first approach is, first extreme, everything is the same with different names. So so in the Old Testament, you had um, priests and you had a high priest. So in the New Testament, we still have priests. We still have like a whole hierarchical structure, just like they did in the old. We call them different names, but basically it's the same thing. <clears throat> and the old, we had, you had a temple. In the new, we try and make our church buildings, you know, as temp- temple as we can. Um, and in the old, you circumcised your babies. So in the new, we baptize our babies and <clears throat> We in the old there was like a structure with you know the priesthood and an ordinary people, and so in the new we've got we've got the clergy and we've got lay people, and so you have and then the old you had a whole lot of very kind of rigid laws like the Sabbath laws and so on and do's and don'ts and we you know we we have a good number of those as well, and the old you have a lot of ritual huge amount of ritual so in the new well we might not have exactly the same ritual but we try and do the same sort of things like so they had various feast days through the year so let's replace them with Christian feasts and so what you're doing you're trying to keep it as much as you can, um, uh, uh, like the old but um, uh, you you bring it into <clears throat> into Christianity. So that's the one extreme. 
So the other extreme is say, well, there's really no no connection. You know, this Old Testament is a weird place, and well, you can read it if you want to, but you'll find it's a bit odd, and you know, there's nothing there that can really help us. And that will be the other extreme. <clears throat> it's a different kind of group, a different time group, a different. Sometimes the word dispensation is used that things happened in. Um, <clears throat> so I would say that the middle point, which is um, the helpful. Uh, which is what I would follow, is it was a signpost, but now we have the reality. Uh, the Old Testament was a signpost. It was pointing, and now we have the reality. <clears throat> so uh, let me give you, let me tell you a story to kind of illustrate this. So uh, about um, about six blocks to the east of where we normally meet on Sundays uh, is a is a, a place called Riverdale Farm. And supposing after church you decided that you would, uh, you and some friends would go and you'd have a picnic in Riverdale Farm. So you start walking along Wellesley Street and um, eventually you, you wander around and you ask some directions and then you find, oh, there's a sign, a sign for Riverdale Farm. Now, actually, <clears throat> this isn't Riverdale Farm. This is just a sign. It's on a corner of a street. Uh, but nevertheless, you say, OK, we're here. We stop. We unpack our picnic on the sidewalk and uh, prepare to spend the afternoon in front of this sign. Um, but why stop at the signpost when you can have the reality? You can actually go into Riverdale Farm and enjoy the reality. And so this is how I would summarize my message today. The reality is Jesus Christ. And the way the Old Testament and the New Testament relates together is that the Old Testament is pointing towards the new. Sometimes the pointing is, um, for example, the lamb uh, pointing to Jesus who died so that we could be free, we could have life. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's pointing to Jesus because of the failure of the Old Testament, like the laws that, that just didn't, that were so minimal, didn't work very well. And Jesus actually putting a new law into our heart through the Spirit. And so some of the Old Testament, you think, well, this just Something has got to work better than this because this doesn't work at all. And the New Testament takes us to the place that where it works. <clears throat> so I'd like to try and pull things together on this slide now as we're just coming to the end today. I'd like to suggest you read the Bible in this year, 2021. And I'd like to, some of that will be reading the Old Testament. Um, read the Old Testament as well as the New and I would recommend getting a study Bible. I would recommend you did that. Um, I, this is, as I said, this is the ESV study Bible. Um, there's another one called the NIV study Bible, as you might have guessed, based on the NIV translation. That's very good. Um, and uh, I would recommend getting something like that. And just uh, to help you answer some of these questions. And uh, then um, I'd like to to end by reading something that Jesus happened in Jesus' life. Because Jesus was actually the ultimate Old Testament study Bible. And and when he met the two disciples after his resurrection on the road and they started talking, we read in Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Then in verse 32, we read later on when he'd gone, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So if you look at those two bits I've highlighted in red and you compare them, the first of them says he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. And the second says he opened to us the scriptures. So in other words, seeing himself, uh, so I should have highlighted in the first one, the things concerning himself. He, he, um, there we go. The, he, he interpreted the things concerning himself. And that's what it was that opened the scriptures to, to them when they saw Jesus in the Old Testament. And so I would suggest to you that ultimately the Old Testament is a signpost to Jesus. The sacrifices point to him. The laws are all fulfilled in him um, as he puts the law, a new law on our hearts. And the failures there are show Jesus' strength in our weakness. Jesus died so that we may have life. So to summarize it, yes, read the Old Testament, but don't see it as a destination, but a journey to Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your amazing revelation of yourself. Thank you, God, for the encounters that we read of that you have with people in the Old Testament. Lord, may we be able to learn from these in the way you want us to and see Jesus in them, not get discouraged and sidetracked by roadblocks, but but come to the place you want us to be in Jesus through reading it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one thing I, before we finish, um, when I first came to Canada in 1985, I went to seminary for a year and um, I studied, one of the courses I took was Old Testament theology. And um, I would ask other students who'd been there for many years, what course did you speak? has spoken to you the most and it was the old testament theology course that generally people said because they said it was before we did this before we studied this it was we didn't figure out the old testament but seeing this progress seeing these things i've been trying to talk about today could make it come to life and that's why we've been doing a series in the old testament because i think there's so much value in really trying to get to grips with what's there and getting it all in perspective